The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Hello and welcome to The Root of the Rod, episode 4 on the Restoration Radio Network. The show examines the historical perspective behind the changes and sort of the glorious growth of Christendom and Christianity throughout history. With me as always, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. Your Excellency, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. And as always, we shall start the show as is your custom with a prayer. Good, thank you. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. We are recording this show on the on the Easter Friday, which also happens to be this year, since it is the 25th of April, the uh, observance known as the Greater Litanies, with the chanting of the Litany of the Saints in procession and the Mass of the Rogation. Let me conclude this little prayer with the collect of today's Mass of the Rogation. Grant, we beseech thee, O Almighty God, that we who in our affliction confide in thy mercy may be ever defended by thy protection against all adversity, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Your Excellency. Uh, In our last few episodes, we've had an opportunity to talk about uh, different, uh, and I I realize now I I announced this as episode four, but we we lost an episode one month, so this is actually episode three. Episode three, yes. We're leading up to this this time period, and today we're going to cover three discrete issues. We're going to talk about the Renaissance. We're going to talk about uh, Martin Luther and, and the consequences of that. We have the, the Protestant revolt, obviously the, the dawn of the Protestant revolt. And I was reflecting with you be- before the show that I'm, I'm in a city today that is very much the, um, I don't know, case study or, or here's what happens when the Protestant revolt happens and you have a city like, like Amsterdam where it was actually illegal to practice Catholicism. And that's where we will end our show today when we talk about the Peace of Westphalia is the consequences of, of where, where the Protestant revolt takes you uh, politically, uh, if not just religiously. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves, you probably want to uh, just get started with the Renaissance. And, and when people hear Renaissance, it, it even sounds like a, a nice word. It sounds like a pretty word. And people don't really have too much to object to when they think about the Renaissance, perhaps. Uh, should they have anything to object to? And give us, give us a, a bird's eye view of this time period. The, the Renaissance, in, in a way, um, stands apart 
But if we're talking about the, the root of the rot, it was the, the Renaissance that really softened uh, and even rotted uh, so many of the roots of, of, the, of the tree, which is, which is Christendom, which is uh, the Catholic Church, and in a way got the poison of immorality, uh, as though the Middle Ages had not been bad enough in the Dark Ages, right into, into the very heart of the Church, right into, uh, right into Rome. As you say, Renaissance sounds like a great word, a, a rebirth. So it's, essentially you're talking about what, um, well, Pope Nicholas V referred to favorably as the new learning. That is to say, oh, due to a lot of factors, the rediscovery of classicism, the old pagan uh, arts, uh, literature, in particular language, Greek, uh, Latin, um, the the great writers of uh, of pagan antiquity, and um, the the arts themselves, and poetry, and to a certain lesser degree, music. All of these things were rediscovered by the humanists, beginning really in about the, um, well, even before the, uh, the, the 15th century with, uh, with Petrarch, uh, we can, we can, um, we can distinguish, I think the, the two here, that is to say that there is a trend which, um, uh, respects, uh, the, the old learning that came before and, uh, uh, and, and uses it for the glory of God. Uh, indeed, in that sense, we have to say that it was St. Thomas Aquinas that, 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 that is the first and, and, and the true humanist and, and the correct and the proper understanding of the term. Then there are those who cleave to uh, classicism, the, the Renaissance literature, and, and all of these rediscoveries for their very paganism, for their opposition to Christ and to the Church and to Christianity. And uh, the sad part about it is that many of these found uh, a welcome in Rome, a place in the papal court, and then because of that, there, there was this tremendous weakening of of morals uh, as a result of the uh, the Renaissance, uh, weakening of, of of the church right at Rome, weakening of the church in in the West, and all of this a little bit like the Great Western Schism we talked about last time and uh, the uh, Avignon captivity of the papacy, all of this weakened the church and set things up for the, the coming of the, uh, of the Protestant revolt. So, so you have a Luther who goes and, and he's, um, he's a conflicted, very poorly educated man. He doesn't, he's, he's not part of the Renaissance. His education is very, very shallow. And he's very busy. He's not a prayerful man. He's got some real moral problems. And he spends a month in Rome and he's thoroughly and genuinely scandalized by what he sees. And this is, he, he sees the, 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 the rot of the Renaissance, you might say. Not the glory of it, not the beautiful turn of phrase, not the rediscovery of literature and poetry. Uh, or the arts? No, no. He sees he sees the the, the 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 corruption and the moral filth, and how it how it's affected the clergyman, and that 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 in, in turn has has a big effect upon him. So those are those those are just some thoughts about maybe how we might want to approach um, approach the Renaissance. Uh, if we look at everything from the from the point of view of um, well, of the saints, quitocat eternitatum, what is this in the light of eternity? Then the Renaissance is at best a really sad detour. It really is. It, it's fruits, um, there's a lot of beauty there, uh, but, but it's, it's, it's fruits 
for the life of the church, I'm afraid we're, uh, we're bitter. Well, I guess in that spirit, Your Excellency, do you want to start with the good news first? Um, <laughs> you know, it sounds like we've got plenty of bad news. So uh, what, what was the good news or shall we say some positive aspects we can take that maybe are not self-evident from the Renaissance? Well, we can we can certainly um, take from it uh, an, an appreciation for that which um, that which came before, uh, for uh, the, the the beauty of the Latin language itself, for the rediscovery of uh, Greek, um, the, the the whole idea of classicism itself. All of these had a, had a lot to give to the church. And um, they are to be seen in um, in the architecture. If you visit Rome still today, and they and they can be appreciated by students and by those who are perhaps more drawn to uh, to culture. But the um, I'm going to say maybe that the that that the negative tends to be a little bit stronger here than the positive. So can we say we've got some art, architecture, and some appreciation for the past? And that's pretty much where you'd leave it, Your Excellency? That is pretty much where I would leave it, yes. Yes, because uh, when, you have a, when you have an era, you're talking about an era where you have uh, honored in Rome members of the papal court, uh, men given, uh, given official positions and titles and, and money, those who, who hated Catholicism, who mocked it, and even mocked the popes themselves, uh, obviously, you've got a you, you've you've got a, a real problem with that, and all of this idea of the Renaissance. Uh, perhaps for me, I would say that the that the greatest problem is that of um, putting man at the center of things. And this is one of those. The Renaissance is one of those watersheds in history. We're never going to recover from. It's never going to change. Man now becomes the, the center and the sum of all things. He's in the, in the heart of it. Even those who are, who will strive their very, very best to, um, to promote the church and to fight error and heresy and to save souls, they too will be affected by this, uh, by this train of thought. The, the, the old idea of medieval man Man living a harmonious life in a Catholic culture in which everything is focused on the objective glory of God, that now sort of takes a second place in man. Uh, man, his thoughts, his emotions, his feelings, his struggles, his sins, all of these take the first, take the first place because of, because of the Renaissance, really. And, and so in that sense, we are all of us, alas, creatures of the Renaissance, children of the Renaissance. We almost have to, to sort of recognize that. There is this man-centeredness and a immense subjectivism. And of course, this, what's this subjectivism except uh, something which will lead in turn, in short order, to Martin Luther and to his uh, revolt against, uh, against Christendom itself, his, his imposition of, of heresy. It, 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 Your Excellency, we were talking a little bit before the show about the fact that the Protestants will refer to the time after as the Protestant Reformation and that no Catholic should refer to that period, at least with a consciousness of being calling it the, the, the Reformation. It should be properly called the Protestant Revolt. Um, that be, being yes. said, we don't have an alternative term for the Renaissance. And, and as you say, the implication seems, seems that, well, you know, the, those past thousand years of Christendom, 
we were sleepy. You know, that was that was a time then and we're 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 growing as people. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, right. Sometimes see, I really wonder, is not the entire story of Christendom simply forgetting grace? That our Lord gives us graces, we forget his grace. We either have to be chastised or have a new miracle. We have to be given new sides and new fingers to put our hands into, and then we forget again. And the idea that the Renaissance is a rebirth is the forgetting that we left all of those pagan things behind. And I guess we woke up after a thousand years, apparently. Sure, sure. I think you could maybe the correct term for the Renaissance. The the real Renaissance is what occurs at the baptismal font, Stephen, and in a mini sense occurs after a good confession or devout communion with the contrition for one's sins. That's the real rebirth. And uh, the uh, the Renaissance, perhaps, in this sense, could more properly be known as um, neo-paganism or the revival of pagan antiquity in Christian circles with all of its difficulties. You mentioned grace. That's going to be a very important subject for us in this particular discussion. Father Fahey says that... Um, do, do you remember the character? He is very important. He's one, really one of the seminal figures of history. Most people don't know about him, but he's it's a name to remember. That wretched Franciscan, that Oxford man, uh, that Englishman, William of Ockham, the founder of the philosophical and theological school of nominalism. His followers taught in, in, in the way of, of theology that grace is just sort of an idea that's out there. And that um, if we're going to be, grace does not transform us. Sanctifying grace does not make us to live the life of God here below. And therefore, the, the idea that culture should create an environment in which man can pursue this um, correctly understood deification where we, we share the, the divine life here below so that one day we can share it forever with God in heaven. Um, no, the nominalists claim you can't really know about grace. That's just one of those ideas out there. Who knows what it really is? If we're going to be accepted by God, we'll be accepted by God, by God's choice. It's his own free choice. And that, of course, takes you to predestination, to Luther, and indeed uh, to Calvin. So, yes, it is, it's all a matter of grace. Grace is the most, most important thing, whether or, not, uh, whether or not grace exists, whether or not we can know what it is, know, whether or not we can lead, the, have a true renaissance, the, the, you know, the real life of grace in our souls, whether or not our politics and our, our economics, the whole society, should be based on the reflection of that, or whether or not it's simply a, a dead letter. It's just a word, and you can give any meaning you want to that word, as, as, indeed, uh, as indeed Luther did. Well, and we'll, we'll, we're going to be talking about William of Ockham a little bit later, Your Excellency, when we, we, uh, we get into Luther. As you say, he's not well known, but uh, his influence was, was massive, and he had an influence on Luther as well. Indeed. Oh, yes, because Luther said that he was a nominalist. Um, interesting. We talked in the, la- the last time about how uh, William of Ockham was summoned by the Pope to Avignon. Uh, already were in the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. And um, the Pope only got around to questioning him about the ramifications of his uh, philosophy for politics. But they never they never touched on theology, unfortunately. And then at that point, he runs off from Rome to take refuge with the German Emperor Louis, and then he becomes the uh, theological 
apologist and defender of of the emperor and his his, his whole movement towards this naturalism or secularism, the idea of reviving Roman law and the Roman state and the tyranny of the emperor, and as something quite independent of uh, of Catholicism and of the papacy. So. At this point, maybe it would be a good thing to say, it really, it's interesting, how interesting it is to study and to discuss history. Thank you for having these shows. Fascinating stuff. And it's all connected. Uh, remember the last time, I, th- I think we talked about how we went from the, from the unthinkable, um, that is to say you had the French, the agents of the French king, Philip the Fair, actually smack the Pope on his throne in the face and pull off his papal vestments from him and throw him into prison, something unthinkable, to the idea of the unknowable. And we have to stay with it. We have to keep those ideas sort of like in the back of our mind to understand what's going on now. How are we going to lead to this, to this, the, the, the new areas, to, to Martin Luther, this idea of, um, of nominalism. So all throughout the Middle Ages, there's... Um, there's this question of a lot of people are are bad, and then many people, of course, are are good, and everybody knows though the rules, and the rules are those of God and revealed religion, the Holy Catholic Church. But now, in, in the uh, at the time of the Renaissance, now we're going to be seeing a justification for being bad. Already in the late Middle Ages, you saw a little bit of that. But now you'll see a real theological or a philosophical justification for this badness, and that's going to lead in turn to uh, to open revolt. And then, so you can see in the sense how um, the, the neo-paganism of the of the Renaissance was just the wrong thing at the wrong time. Not only did it weaken the, the heart of Christianity, which was the uh, papacy, but it introduced this idea of everything is man-centered, man-centered art, man-centered spirituality, man-centered culture, politics, and, uh, and economics. Everything is, everything is just the center. And at the same time, at the center of man. And at the same time, it weakens what is meant to be, in God's plan, the center of Christendom, that is to say, Rome and the papal court. So in 1521-22, you had um, Adrian the Sixth, and wasn't he a Dutch pope? Isn't, wasn't he the last non-Italian to be Might pope? And there, there you are in Holland today. What a thought! Uh, so he he's just pope for two years, and he attempts to make a, a reformation, and of course he has to work against the the uh, uh, a century and more of uh, not consistently, but very frequently, bad popes and worldly men. And he laments, Adrian VI does, that Rome has become the first source of vice. Because Nicholas V wanted Rome to be, he was a, he's a good example of a disastrous pope, he wanted, wanted Rome to be the center of this new learning. And so they bring in all of these neo-pagans and enemies of Christianity and immoral, disgustingly immoral men. And you can imagine the deleterious effect, effect of it all. So the center is all wrong. The center is no longer uh, Rome, a spiritual Rome, Rome preaching the truth, and, uh, and, and, and then directing our attention to Christ the King, our Lord. Now the, the, the direction is, is on man. And that which should be the, the bulwark of Christendom, the papal court of Rome, becomes uh, unfortunately an accomplice in um, in rotting the, the, the very roots of, of 
of, of this great tree of Christendom. So. Well, and you know, Your Excellency, I know sometimes our listeners might hear us say the word rot uh, maybe too many times, but uh, things <laughs> rot at the, at the head. And one of the ways to rot the head is to corrupt the king. And some political ideas that we live with today date from this time period. Now, we have to create a division here. A lot of the poisonous ideas that as, as we as Americans live with come from both the American and the French Revolution. So that, that's its own uh, origin. However, the idea of king as a virtuous, uh, God-fearing monarch um, takes a turn for the worse during this time period with, with a man named Machiavelli. Now, I think that most of our listeners are, are going to know Machiavelli simply by the colloquial term. Someone say, well, that's very Machiavellian. Mm-hmm. Yes. So can, can you break that down? Some people may think they know what that means. Can you, can you break that down for us a little further, Yarsi, and then talk about his role not only within Italy, but within Europe? Yeah, he, because he's a very good, he's a very good um, Renaissance figure, and he's an excellent example of that bridge. Uh, he, of course, he's a man of, of disbelief and utter cynicism. We have to stress that. But he's a, he's a, he's a good example of that, that bridge between kings and, and rulers who were sometimes good and sometimes bad. And, but at the end of the day, they realized they would have to go before Christ and be judged at their particular judgment. They, they still had the faith. They believed they didn't live their faith always. Sometimes in enormous ways they offended against it. But nevertheless, they had their faith. They had that realization. And now you have the, the new kind of thinker, uh, because of the Renaissance, Italy, who, who doesn't believe. He doesn't believe anything at all. He's a cynic. And so he, he's a man who's going to formalize in, um, in, in a book, in his writings, the idea that's going to inform so much of um, French politics and thus the history of the church. You might say he would have been the personal theologian of uh, Catherine de' Medici, mother of three French kings in a row. That is to say that she did whatever she want, felt she had to do at that moment that would be advantageous to her whether it be in favor of the church or whether it be against the church, that made absolutely no difference. And in a sense, too, he almost reflects the Renaissance um, politics of the papacy. That is to say that the papacy struggling to stay as a, as a, as a, as a viable power would sometimes um, be against France, and then, and then France would fall, and then the, to keep the balance right, then then the church would, uh, the, the pope would then have to be in favor of France and against the Spanish. And then back and forth, there was always this back and forth, back and forth. There's constant battles and wars and diplomacy and the raising of money and treaties and all of the rest. And somehow, in, in the world of politics, somehow the, war, the, the, the Catholic principles are very, very easily lost sight of. And Machiavelli is the man who sees all of this, and he promotes it, and that's what he wants. He doesn't believe in Catholic principles. He simply believes in what this world can offer for the sake of this world. That's it. So he, he's a great, true, fair figure of the Renaissance, and, and his thinking, directly or indirectly, has, has a tremendously uh, uh, deleterious, really evil and wicked effect on the history of Christendom. 
Yeah, I remember being astonished the first time that I read The Prince. I think that was probably the last time I read The Prince, too. It's not a particularly edifying work. No, uh, I don't think it was. Unlike, you. let's say, a, a, a contemporary, Thomas Akempis wrote The Imitation of Christ, which is a book you should probably never stop reading. And um, in The Prince, some, some general ideas, which I think we see in our political leadership today, are, are still with us. The idea is better to be feared. Than, than to be loved, and we see that with, with drone yes. bombing and rendition and uh, the government spying on you. Um, mm-hmm. I, the idea that uh, we should at least appear to, uh, that the, a prince should appear to be honest and devout and faithful, so we have the pretense of American presidents going to church or attending prayer breakfast, even though yes. they, they, yes. there's absolutely no nothing there. One, one might even argue, although I, this is an entirely different show, Your Excellency, we could talk about uh, John F. Kennedy attending Mass. Uh, but yeah, uh, see, that, that would be a good example of that. Uh, Americans, a, we, can only, we can only handle so much at once, right? <laughs> <laughs> the poor we'll, talk, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that uh, another show. Um, and the idea that we can, uh, it's, it's important for a prince to keep his word, unless, of course, he needs to break it. Yes, um, yes. And as I say, that's that's all of these things. These are the uh, commandments for politicians throughout the world, and many a so-called Catholic ruler, monarch, king or queen espoused these uh, these principles, if you call them principles, and uh, and and lived and ruled by them. And then how important it is to see then the link, as we're saying, between this kind of a this kind of a cynical politic. Uh, which is the mo- which is modern politics? It's truly, this is the, we're, we're looking at the birth, uh, the birth of the modern world, with um, the rise of Protestantism. How did Lutheranism succeed? It was the Catholic princes who protected Luther, who gave him safe passage, and who realized, wait a minute, we're going to be wealthy. Wait a minute, we're not going to have to answer to anybody else any ever again. We won't have to worry about the Pope. There won't be any pope for us, and we'll get the monasteries. We'll get the the immense lands and their income, and so it's a and it's a win win situation for us. And Luther realized it too. So he, after his time of um, utter uh, fomenting of utter social unrest and revolution, sort of a mini French Revolution in his own backyard, and he got tired of that in a hurry. Then he turned against the peasants, the peasants' revolt, and he he gave all the authority and all of his support. To, to the princes. All of the power was, and they in turn then did everything that they could to promote Protestantism, but always in the name of politics, of power, property, expediency. And that's exactly what Machiavelli is doing. You can imagine from his, his, um, his uh, seat in hell, wherever he is, you know, you can imagine him smiling and approving every step of the way. He loves, he loves, uh, the effect that he has had upon history and his immense success. Well, that's just so judgmental of you, Your Excellency. I mean, you know atheists <laughs> can go to heaven these days. I mean, I mean oh, surely, I surely there's a place in heaven for Machiavelli. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if, the, if, if I get a, one of those phone calls, you know, I'll be sure to let you know about it. <laughs> <laughs> Father Bergoglio is on the line to take me to task. <laughs> I don't want to be more papist than the Pope, that's for sure. Right, right. For for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to The Root of the Rot, Episode 3. Uh, I'm Stephen Heiner, and I have the great pleasure of uh, chatting with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. 
Today, uh, we've been talking about the Renaissance and the ideas behind it. We just finished talking about Machiavelli. And I say I want to tie us going forward. Uh, another, uh, we talk about consequences that are still to the present day. We talk about the imperial presidency. We, we acknowledge the fact that the American president is more powerful than any ruler in the history of mankind. The, the money and the military backing at, at his beck and call is, is unbelievable. But this dates back to the idea fostered by Machiavelli of the absolute monarch, the monarch who will do whatever it takes in order to advance his kingdom at the cost of others. So there's no idea of a universal, uh, universal Christendom. Um, and absolute monarchy leads us to Protestantism by another path, because it means if you're telling everybody that there's a divine right, no one has to answer to the king, um, then you say, well, you know, the king only has to answer to God if he even believes in God, but he certainly doesn't have to answer to any any popery. And this, and this, I think, Stephen, I think this takes us to to to, to something I would like to underline and, and talk about again. I would like to reemphasize if the purpose of these. Um, presentations is really to get at the root of the rod. Now, how did this happen to us? Uh, I don't think that we can overemphasize the importance of politics, the constant conflict, the potential conflict that exists from the time of Constantine all the way through history. That is to say, um, rulers who are going to adopt Christianity, who will then be involved in the life of the church. I think that uh, I think we can fairly say that the the seeds of the problem were already present. And, and of course, you saw it with Constantine, because by Constantine's death, he he was promoting he and his family were promoting Arianism by and large, and he had Arian bishops at his court. Um, and then you had all those centuries of the Greek politics, Byzantine and all the rest of it, promoting one heresy after another until Almighty God in his justice just closed it all down by sending Mohammed as his scourge to the east because he was tired of all these Christological heresies, offended by it all, and that was the end of that. Even, even with Charlemagne, they say that even with Charlemagne, good as he was and holy as he was in his own life, the seeds of the conflict were there. And some writers think, Monsignor Hughes says this, had he lived longer, there would have been a conflict. Because who's got the power finally? We have the ideal in the church's social doctrine, the, and we've talked about it in earlier shows, about the, the correct relationship between the king and the pope, church and state. But um, it's always a question of power. And once the secular has a taste for the power, the secular arm is not easily going to give it up. And the, 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 the temptation from the devil always is then to pervert that somehow, either in the way of seeking for a justification, as we've been talking about today, maybe with Machiavelli, or we'll see with Luther, or simply in the, in the, in the case of some, maybe some for popular propaganda purposes. So there'll be some perverse ideas that are introduced to justify the status quo of the Pope, the Church, under the heel of the King, the Emperor, or the President, or some kind of a tyrant or another throughout history. So that's something to watch. Watch the conflict throughout the centuries. It always goes back to that. Of that, I'm absolutely convinced. Well, and I think, too, it's interesting, Your Excellency, uh, people are always happy to, to commemorate uh, things that are enjoyable. So we 
you'll you'll have the odd idea of Cinco de Mayo being celebrated in the United States, despite the fact that that most uh, Hispanics or even Americans who, who quote unquote celebrate this holiday have no idea what it's about. Uh, but it, because it's a it's a party, we can continue to do it. And I, I think as we're coming out of Lent, we think, well, no one ever works hard to perpetuate sacrifice or penance, right? It's like, well, you know, maybe we should do 50 days. I, I think you said that, Your Excellency, it really impacted me. You know, Lent should be longer. No one ever said, you know, why don't we add an octave of of penance <laughs> on top of that? And and so, you know, we'll see we'll see these these things still being celebrated and perpetuated because, as you say. How do even if I wanted to go back to the old ways, think of that period between uh, Elizabeth, uh, Mary, Mary Tudor before Elizabeth, and there was an opportunity for England to come back to the faith, but they have that yes. that, that noble has to back and say, "Wow, all those lands I got, I have to give those back." That's right. And, That's right. Yes. And it's so well illustrated in "Come Rack, Come Rope." where you, you have noblemen who are just being fined out of existence of their nobility or, or squires who have nothing left after paying fines, after fines, after fines. And the idea is, well, you know, I'm going to be practical. Let's be practical, Your Excellency. And, and that's, mm-hmm. uh, that in, in some ways is the watchword of, of the Renaissance and where we'll end today at the Peace of Westphalia is, is practicality, right? Um, and what are politics, if not the art? It's, it's the art. Politics is the art of the practical, and that's of course that that informs the whole of this again very very important moment of the Treaty of Westphalia in the 17th century. Uh, is because this 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 would work. It's going to be a, we're going to go to a status quo, and we're just going to we're just going to have cut off dates. Who's going to own what? But you know, it's interesting, Stephen, that the Pope actually had offered some sort of a similar solution. Through Cardinal Pohl, his legate to uh, Mary Tudor, for for a solution that there would be some sort of an adjustment or settlement made, it wouldn't be a wholesale restoration of the monasteries because it was already too late for that, and the, and the Pope already had in mind the um, simply the salvation of souls and the restoration of the Catholic faith in in, in England. So uh, the Church herself, um, the Church herself is. Um, very influenced by these ideas. I mean, the church, the men in the church, and the politics of the moment. You'll see that too, even in the uh, the reaction to the Peace of Westphalia. That's interesting too. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. Well, I, before I, we're, we've, I think we've done an excellent job. When I say we, I mean you, Your Excellency, of talking about this time period. Is there anything else you want to say about the Renaissance before we move into the second segment of today's show, which is? The, the the maybe one of the worst characters that the ideas behind the Renaissance uh, produced, if not directly, at least indirectly through the the soup and the stew that the Renaissance was, helped to produce uh, Martin Luther, um, quite possibly the, the greatest heretic that the Church has ever known. Monsignor Hughes calls him um, a, a, a genius. Uh, truly, he was a personality of genius. The, the greatest, maybe since uh, since Arius, since Arius, and he also we don't want to offend any of our of our listeners, Stephen, of course, but he also uh, portrays him as a classic, characteristically German in, uh, personality uh, for presents for all the good. It, it, national characteristics are so true, after all, and he had all the good qualities of a German and all the bad qualities of a German. 
He calls him uh, you know, tender-hearted and brutal, sentimental, muddle-headed, self-contradictory, obscure, dogmatic, arrogant, not too well informed on any one of the matters that occupied him, and um, uh, all, all the weaknesses and, uh, and all the scandals of the ecclesiastical life of his day affected him very, very much. But somehow he, he was one of those characters with that, with that force of personality. So when he, when he said, I, Dr. Martin Luther, I decree this, I say that, people listened. And he was able indeed to shake the, the church to her very foundations by his um, blasphemous heresies and by all of the support which he received, let's emphasize it again, from the, the Catholic princes of the day. Luther is inevitably tied to indulgences, and whenever yeah. his name comes up with non-Catholics or I get into discussions or whenever I'm at the inevitable tour, I'm on an inevitable tour where I'm told lies about Catholicism, and I'm always trying to think, how do I tactfully interrupt a tour guide and tell him that he's got no idea what he's talking about? Um, this, yeah, right. this idea of indulgences I really strongly feel that Catholics, particularly, let's say, traditional Catholics, although I always am, uh, I don't like using that term. I just like to use it, the, the old-fashioned term Christian or Catholic. Traditional too, Catholics yes, should, should be able to just deal with this head-on and know everything about it. So can you, can you walk us through the, the basic catechetical premise of what an indulgence is what was being abused at the time, and then what this led Luther on to? Well, we have what's called, um, so there, there isn't just the, the treasury with ducats and gold and silver someplace in Rome for the, for, for the, for the Pope, the use of the Pope. There is as well a spiritual treasury of which the Pope, as the head of, of the church on earth, as the vicar of Jesus Christ, disposes of. There is, and in the spiritual treasury go the merits of our Lord from his human nature, the merits of the mother of God, St. Joseph, the apostles and all the saints, all of those merits, those spiritual goods that they had earned, of which they had no need uh, because of, of their preeminent sanctity, the fact that, of course, they went after their life on earth, they went straight to heaven. And then all of the good deeds of, of Christendom, nothing is, that's a beautiful thought, that nothing is wasted. So somebody who has a stab of pain in his foot this afternoon and says, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph has a little prayer and offers it up maybe for the poor souls, that's in the church's spiritual treasury. What a glorious thought. Nothing is wasted. Uh, that's the economy of grace and the economy of salvation. Right. So we've got this treasury. Now, then you have all these people that are in terribly in need of this treasury. We talked earlier about how good it would be um, to extend Lent somehow, if, if, and what a need there would be. Consider that in the old days for certain public scandalous mortal sins, murder, adultery, that's apostasy from the faith, there would be years, uh, days and days, if not years of penance that would be done. With the passage of time, these acts of public penance that such an their history has such an effect upon uh, the history of the Lenten masses, the Lenten liturgy in particular. Um, eventually, all of this fell, fell off, fell into destitute. No, no one was observing it anymore. But people were still sinning, and they were actually sinning more enthusiastically and more boldly than ever they had before. So the Church, in its wisdom, provided a means to counterbalance 
that which would be coming to these individuals. Remember that when anyone um, sins, there are, he incurs two types of punishment. There is a, an eternal punishment and a temporal punishment. The eternal punishment is taken away by a confession in the case of mortal sin or an act of perfect confession. In the case of venial sin, the 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 the, the, the punishment is uh, the guilt thereof is taken away by um, by even the devout use of sacramental say, but the temporal punishment that remains due to sin, mortal or venial, is chipped away at by our voluntary penance. Maybe the penance is given to us by the priest in the confessional, certainly, and the acts of self denial and penance during our life, mortification. That that. The, the idea of it is that aids, it aids for our spiritual purification, our, our reformation, in, in the true proper sense of the term. Um, now, if we don't accomplish that spiritual purification, the cleansing of our soul, its detachment from sin, its attachment to Christ in this life, well, then that remains to be taken care of in purgatory. Because of the doctrine of the mystical body of, the, of Christ, we know that we, the church militant on earth, are united with the church suffering in purgatory, and that we can help them by our prayers and by our penances. So um, that's a little bit of the background that, that would be that would that would set us up for an understanding how that by the devout recitation of a certain prayer under the proper conditions, some of the penance that we should have been doing for our sins, uh, the effect of that penance at least, is now applied to the soul. And the um, so if, if a penance says, if an indulgence rather says 300 days indulgence, it doesn't mean 300 days off purgatory because purgatory is an eternity. Pur- purgatory is outside of time. There is no time in purgatory. But it means the equivalent, if you could so so measure out an equivalent for um, as much merit as you would have gained by doing penance for 300 days in the old days, by saying just one prayer. It's, it's a wonderful thought. It should fill us with this thought of the justice of God and how grievous are our sins and the importance of, of penance. And on the other hand, the mercy of God through the Catholic Church that these prayers and these other means are given to us whereby we may gain indulgences. So that's an indulgence. It is for in exchange for the proper doing of some good deed, uh, an act of self-denial or penance or prayer, the, uh, the, the, the soul then accrues a certain amount of, um, of merit that would in the old days have been given to the soul by penance and fasting for, for, for hundreds of days or even years. And then a plenary indulgence takes away all of the punishment due to sin. If it's properly received, the soul would then be in the condition, should God accept the indulgence, to go straight to heaven after after death. How, how does yeah, that yeah, sound, Stephen? That, that sounds excellent. It, it, I, I have to say, I'm always triggered whenever I hear 100 days or 300 days. I think, well, those are historically rooted in penances you had to do. So if you want to complain yes. about you know, having to do a rosary or something because you know, His right. Excellency gave you that as a penance. I mean, remember that 300 days, that references to the amount of time you weren't allowed to go to church. That, that yeah, was I, a, imagine. Yeah. And it, it didn't mean you could stay home and watch TV or something. It meant you stood in your sackcloth, maybe carrying a big old candle at the door of the church in the, on the church porch in all sorts of weather. And you could peer in, but you couldn't get in. And uh, everyone would know that you were doing penance. 
wow, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, there was an element of, of humiliation and reparation, public reparation, as well as of um, affliction and, and offering up of a certain inconvenience. So uh, it was, that should, as I say, they should, they should fill us with thoughts of eternal things. So the indulgence that was being preached in Germany by um, the Dominican friar John Tetzel was um, eventually was designed to um, encourage the giving of alms for the building of St. Peter's Basilica because the old one had partially collapsed. The new plans had been drawn up, and now the money was needed. Somehow, because of church politics and the rest of it, this got connected with um, the young Archbishop of Mainz, who had to pay for his dispensation to become, at this young age, the archbishop of the city. And he wanted to be archbishop because that would be power and politics, and that would guarantee him his income and his position in society. And so somehow it's all connected with that, too. And so that's a problem. That's a scandal. The other scandal is the way in which, uh, it's generally admitted, the way, the way in which the indulgence uh, was preached. That is to say, it was a purely... A superstitious act it was promoted that way, a mechanical act, as they say. As soon as the coin in the coffer springs, uh, the the soul from purgatory springs. And of course, that's nothing. That's heretical. Uh, such an it's such an unfortunate phrase, isn't it? Very, very unfortunate phrase. And had that ever had, it's, it's inconceivable to think of a Catholic religious preacher actually using that phrase. But that was a concept people had. And that was certainly, and that was certainly reinforced in people's minds that it was sort of, if I pay the money, then I receive this this indulgence, and therefore it's going to be time off my my purgatory when I go to heaven, uh, when I when I go into eternity to be judged by God. So it, there there was that sense of reducing it just to superstition and a, a mechanical exchange, and and no one talked at all about that which is necessary to receive an indulgence. That is to say, the the, the frame of soul in which uh, you have the intention to gain the indulgence out of the love of God, and because of the love of God, you have to have a hatred for all sin. In effect, it's a state of perfect contrition that's required for an indulgence to work, if you will. That is to say, I resolve that I will never sin again. I have no affection for any sin in my soul at this time, and I resolve that I will never offend our dear Lord who loves us so much by ever committing another willful sin again. That's how it was that um, St. Catherine of Siena, I think, at the, uh, in one of the first holy years, saw, or maybe it was Bridget of Sweden, one of the saints, one of the medieval saints, saw that of all of the thousands and thousands who flocked to the city to gain the plenary indulgence, because back then indulgences were few and far between, of visiting the seven principal churches during the Jubilee or the Holy Year, which was a true and beautiful proper celebration, um, hardly anyone the saint saw in, in the vision, hardly anyone actually gained the indulgence because no one had the proper or spiritual understanding of it, and nobody had that disposition of heart of perfect contrition with that resolution never to sin again. Because, see, that's what the devil wants, and that's what fallen human nature wants. He wants us, they want us to just reduce these things to some sort of an external, mechanical, physical act, and it just doesn't work that way. Your Excellency, would the proper...
argument when you are believers, even uh, atheists are, are the most likely to bring up the Luther and indulgence argument. Is it proper to say something along the lines of what you've been talking about? Say, Luther had a legitimate grievance, but, or there were some problems, and here's how Luther got it wrong. What would be the better tack to take in argumentation? There, there were many, many problems for the church in, in, in the 16th century, and the church was truly in, in need of a thorough, proper reform. Um, Luther, this, this uh, genius and this tortured, troubled individual, and a very, very evil character indeed, Luther took advantage of these weaknesses in order to tear apart the seamless robe of Christ, as Arius once did. Uh, and, this, and this, for his own, to satisfy his own inner demons uh, and all of the rest of it, no doubt. But he simply took advantage of these weaknesses that he found. He shouldn't have, fi- have found those weaknesses. If he found those weaknesses, it was due to what we've been talking about. It was due to the the Black Death and to the Great Western Schism, several competing popes. It was due to the papacy in Avignon, the papacy of as the plaything of the powerful Roman families in the ninth and the tenth centuries. All all the trouble with politics, all the trouble with the raising of money, all the worldliness. And then, since we're on the topic. It was due to the Renaissance. It was due to this neo-paganism that infected the very heart of the church, the papal court at Rome. Um, so, in a sense, you can see that the Catholic Church uh, was the devil's playground during that era. He, the devil just moved around in so many era, uh, areas unopposed. Our Lord, of course, raised up many and great saints at the same time in his mercy to be able to oppose this. But that's how Luther got his success, because he saw some of these evils, and he, w- he was able to, to use them, to twist them for his own purposes. But let's be clear, Luther never wanted a reform of the Catholic Church. He wanted some sort of an answer for his own inner turmoil, because he was an immoral man, and he felt himself unable, or i.e. unwilling, to reform his own life. And because of that, he came up with a whole theological justification for people getting to heaven without ever reforming their lives. Uh, it's interesting you, you mentioned that, Your Excellency, because th- that's, that's the problem, isn't it? That this, the narrative of Luther as tortured soul is never really talked about. The idea, the implication is he's tortured about having to leave the church. That's the idea. It's like, oh, you know, if only I could reform the church, everything. But I have to go and cut this swath out on my own because the church is irreformable, something along those lines. And, uh, and no one ever talks about, as you mentioned, his deep psychological issues. And I suppose uh, there are so many different ways we could get into this, Excellency. but given that Luther's a segment today's show and not the focus of all of it, I thought what we might do is simply go from religious vow to troubled confessions to the 95 theses. Um, so we'll, we'll just kind of skip, skip those. So why don't we start with uh, the, the idea of a rash vow and why we shouldn't, why we shouldn't do that? Well, Luther um, made a rash vow through the invocation of St. Anne that if he was spared uh, lightning, uh, death by lightning, sudden death, during a storm, that he would become a, a religious. And uh, that's, as you say, that's a classic example of a rash vow. And that, was, that, would, be, that, would, be no, um, that would be no condition at all for anyone to have a true vocation to the priesthood or 
to the religious state. So he should never have he should never have gotten in to start with. Then once he got in, he should have gotten for himself a proper training or formation, both in the spiritual life and in proper scholastic philosophy and then in theology. He had none of the above. He didn't begin to have the means necessary to um, to be able to to uh, to deal with uh, the the struggles that he faced personally in his own soul, as well as the corruption of the church in his age, in his era, in his in his environment. He, just, he simply didn't have that. And then, um, so then that, that that all then you know one of I read something interesting once in a priest magazine from years maybe in the twenties uh, about um, the, the it was a list of Luther's jobs. You know, Luther would always complain, I'm too busy. I never have any time to pray. And he would feel guilty about not praying because he did not pray. He admitted that. He was the first to say. He, he, would, he would say his office, and then he would try to say the divine office for several days in a row to make up for the days that he had missed. And uh, the same thing with the Mass. He would miss saying his Mass. He would miss meditation. He would miss choir in the Augustinian monastery where he was a friar. Uh, and he, because he had all of these obligations, he was preacher, he was lecturer, and the last of his duties was supervising some fish ponds. <laughs> and the priest who wrote this article said, I wonder if it's the fish ponds that did him in finally. That is to say, one <laughs> further act of busyness. He had to supervise, I don't know, feeding the fish or whatever it was, or collecting the rent maybe uh, from those to whom had been rented out, or the fish maybe for the friar's uh, dinner. But um, he, didn't, he didn't have time to pray. He didn't have the formation and the training. He didn't have time to pray. He should never have been a religious. And then, but if he had prayed... He had the vocation once he was a priest. God would have given him the grace, but he didn't. He he went back and forth, and he was his mind was all malformed and rotted by Occam's nominalism, the the idea that there aren't there are no objective truths, and that grace is a vague concept out there. But he didn't have this. He didn't believe that sanctifying grace could transform him, that he could get peace of heart and peace of conscience. So there he is. And in the latrine, in the toilet, the cloaca, it's called in Latin, they're suffering from constipation and, 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 and thinking about all these thoughts and, and torturing himself. And that's where he admits, that's where he came up with his, uh, his chief heresy, that is to say, the justification uh, by faith alone. And then everything, everything else, in, in a sense, flows or follows from that. I suppose it, it flow it, it flowed right out of the cloaca. Probably your excellency would be. A I good, think good, that we could care. say that fairly, <laughs> fairly <laughs> accurately, and and how appropriate, right? How appropriate? What a, what what a story? Because uh, <clears throat> because truly, Martin Luther was a, a foul, vicious, dirty-mouthed, self-indulgent, disgusting character. He was also one of these religious geniuses. This, utterly charismatic personality that had such an effect upon his time and his age but um he he he, he the reality the reality takes you back to the latrine again basically well and, and speaking of the latrine for for those of you who are just joining us you're listening to root of the rot episode three um on the restoration radio network i'm stephen heiner with his excellency bishop daniel dolan for the last uh, segment we've been discussing Martin Luther, and I suppose at this point, Eric, I might say that this is the 
the point where I say, if there are young children listening to the podcast, that you might uh, send them out for a little bit, because we're going to get into some of the, the, the just the direct quotes of Martin Luther. Because I, again, I think the narrative is Martin Luther was this tortured soul who had who was trying to reform the church. And you've started already to get to the real story, which is, you know, well, he was a tortured soul who had his own problems, and he managed to slip through the system. Well, yeah. when you get when he gets to his heresies, it's not just the heresies, you know, the idea of doctrinal uh, problems where we we get to the idea of justification and grace. And people might say, well, Stephen, that, that's really intellectual. Uh, that's hard for me to follow. Say, so, well, let me step back from the intellectual stuff, just read some of these direct quotes. So, again, if younger children, you might want to um, have them away for this segment or at least be be forewarned. Um, your says, yeah, I'm just going to mention some of these quotes, and then if you have any, if you have any commentary, <laughs> um, uh, we've got uh, probably we'll start with the worst, which is the uh, blasphemy about our Lord. Um, our Lord, yes. yes. Uh, Christ committed adultery first of all with the woman at the well, about whom Saint John tells us. Uh, was not everybody about him saying, whatever has he been doing with her? Secondly, with Mary Magdalene, and thirdly, with the woman taken in adultery, whom he dismissed so lightly, thus even Christ, who was so righteous, must have been guilty of fornication before he died. Yes, and so it's just the, the unspeakable blasphemy of that. And then, of course, he, uh, that, this is the man. This is Martin Luther. This is the founder of your religion. <laughs> right. The, the, this is the reality. Indeed, you know this is this is uh, this is the, the, and then this this whole idea of his own tortured sense that he says he, he says I can't pray without cursing, and he has to he, if he if he if he if he says hallowed be thy name, he has to add curses and damnations against uh, um, against uh, the papists, that is to say the Catholics, uh, and, and then the, then the whole idea of his immorality too. Well, yes, uh, and well, that, the impurity, the, the the sting of the flesh may be helpful, may be helped along, as long as there are women and girls to be found. I mean, just just disgusting things, disgusting things. Uh, the same, of course, would be, is is going to be true of uh, of Henry the Eighth. How can people seriously claim the, the the name of Christian and follow a religion, a religious system established by these really dirty men, filthy, and and blasphemers against our Lord? few years before, he would have been, and he certainly should have been burned at the stake as a heretic, no question about it. It would have been a, would have been a mercy to him and to all of us, actually. Uh, but um, as it turned Indeed. out, you know, I, I think back to that vow, you know, St. Anne should have finished him off, uh, you know, and the, the, you know you should have in the beginning. The <laughs> she should have not, not have heard his prayer, uh, alas, but uh, our Lord has reasons for all of these things. It, uh, along with the quote you, you you said, I suppose the watchword for all of the quotes I'm I'm going to read is the idea of uh, be a sinner and sin boldly. I mean, I, I could I could probably read quotes all day, Your Excellency, but the last one, well, I, I'm just looking over all these pages of quotes, and I, I don't I don't really want to scandalize people too much more. But will one of them has a direct relationship to the the books of scripture that are used by I do, uh, some people would call them our separated brethren. We would probably mm-hmm. call them heretics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of St. James' epistle as an epistle of straw. I mean, the idea yes, that uh, right. you're just going to you're you're just you're just going to dismiss a book of scripture. You, the, the 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 boldness of this man. I mean, indeed, he takes his own advice. If you're going to sin, sin boldly. 
if you're going to create a religion, I suppose be bold about it. Yes, I mean, well, I mean, if you have someone who blasphemes our Lord, uh, openly embraces adultery and fornication, and then actually prays to the devil and tells people that we should pray to the devil, you, that, well, that, that, that gives you the measure of the man and the measure of his religious system, that's for sure. So in, in attacking popery and, and Catholicism, as you say, if there's a softening that the Renaissance gave us, then it, Luther yes. breaks through that softening, and the entire system is at risk. And that brings us to the third segment of, of today's show and the political consequences and ultimately the long-term consequences for Christendom of not having a unity of faith. If, as you say, in the Middle Ages, not everyone may have practiced, but everyone knew the score. Now the score and, the, and, and now the score, you could say, and the game is being changed entirely. Yeah. Again, I don't want to trivialize, but I, hopefully I can use an idiom for people to, to more under, readily understand what we're talking about. It's not a game. But uh, this leads us to a destabilizing of multiple countries multiple monarchies, and human nature will go various ways. We have some staunch uh, German Catholic princes. We also have some German princes who are all too ready to grab land, and that gets us into war. And and I guess as a preface, I'll have one last quote here from Luther, because I think it's a good preface into the Peasants' Revolt. And he says, <clears throat> unfortunately, the reverse is now the case for now we see the people becoming more infamous, more avaricious, more unmerciful, more unchaste, and in every way worse than they were under popery. So Luther is willing to admit himself that things are much worse now than they ever were under what he would consider even the corrupted form of Catholicism. Yeah, so he, uh, uh, well, and that shows to the measure of the man in the sense that he's all over the place. There, there, there's no logic. Uh, there's no reason. It's uh, everything has been just destroyed, and the only thing that's left, and as in the case of, of any turn to this of this type, is that somehow he's still vaguely expecting that people will follow him, regardless of what he says and what he does. And he's really shocked to see there are other teachers who set themselves up, for example, against him. And he's really shocked to see that this revolution that he's unleashed is taken seriously by the peasants and by other preachers, and that all of society is falling apart. And this is his, he doesn't see that that is his doing. That you see the direct um, ideas have consequences. Here's the direct consequence of sola fide, that your behavior makes no difference at all. You're saved by this, by this act of trust in Christ's merits, and you should just go ahead and continue to, to, to sin as long as you believe even more strongly, then you're, you're going to be good. You're, you're going to be... Uh... So all of this, all of this is the, is the exact and the direct result. As, of course, is too, we have to say, the, um, uh, the, uh, this political situation we'll be talking about now, last of all, the, uh, the Luther subjects uh, his church to the state. And that, in turn, is going to, uh, like the Orthodox, like the Greek or the Russian Orthodox, this is going to lead to absolutism, to totalitarian governments and movements, and um, the the all of the safeguard that you see in the beauty of the medieval system for all of its flaws, because of 
weak human nature. All of those safeguards whereby the king was a king, but there were moderating forces upon the, his monarchical government. Um, um, the, the aristocracy had certain rights. The power of the king was to centralize the question of who could tax and under what circumstances. So all of these things served as the true system of checks and balances, if you will, for, for the king. That's all swept away now. And Luther gives, because there's no papacy left, he gives all of the power to the princes so that we'll see, you know, with the Peace of Westphalia, the church religion just becomes uh, a department of the state. It's just one more portfolio, one more uh, office to be held by some layman, and that's in, indeed how the the, the, uh, the Protestants would run it. And they would be in, this layman would be in charge to answer to the government for all religious matters. So Luther is the one who makes this um, this radical change of, um, in effect, destroying this perfectly balanced system, which on a good day really worked very well. Now is setting setting up the way for for tyranny, for bloody term, tyranny. Is it fair to say, Your Excellency, there's a demonstration here that the, the the idea of an established church or an established religion only works when it's the, the true religion, right? It, it can't really work when it's um, based on whimsy. Oh, obviously so, because the era has no rights and never and never will have any rights. Uh, but it's interesting to consider too that. Um, uh, Calvin and his followers uh, take uh, the ideas of Luther to their logical conclusion, and he establishes a theocracy such as the Catholic Church has never desired nor imposed, uh, despite modern propaganda, on the world. Uh, Calvin establishes a kind of a Islamic State, Ayatollah Khomeini type of uh, Iranian theocracy in, in Geneva and in, in the other uh, cities of Switzerland, in which the, the 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 ministers run the show and 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 everyone's spied on, and every a bit like the Puritan the Puritan rule in in the New World or in England, and everyone has to toe the line very very carefully. Um, so this this is a, a perversion of the true idea of the Catholic state, and it is a sort of a sort of a tyrannical theological. Um, uh, government ruled ruled over by heretic ministers. This this too this all can be traced back to to Luther and to his very very great work of destruction. Well, and and speaking of destruction, we have monasteries. So the idea of, of of taking a monastery's land, you think, okay, well that's fine. Is the monastery still preserved? Well, you're talking about monasteries being burned to the ground, convents being burned to the ground, churches, unspeakable yeah. violations against against the religious which we would see mm-hmm. later on in an even more violent form, I would argue, at the time of the French Revolution. Uh, but, but here in this time period, at least we see destruction of countless properties. I think you and I were both looking at a text where uh, in Germany alone, a thousand castles and monasteries destroyed. I mean, that's yes. a boggling number, especially if you've ever seen one of these uh, medieval German uh, castles or monasteries, it's unbelievable to think there used to be a thousand mm-hmm. more, at least a thousand more. Yes, and the, the thought just just gone, just burned, just destroyed. Uh, in, in, in the name of, in the name of, well, the revolution used in a Machiavellian fashion, cynically, 
by the political rulers who would piously portray themselves as good Protestants. But really, they were good rulers. They were good to themselves. And that was the, that was the bottom line for them. That was, if you will, the genius of Hitler, or Hitler, of Luther, rather. And he appealed, he appealed to that, and he was successful. And that is how Protestantism gained the day and led to the real rot of Christendom, that in turn will then prepare the way for uh, for Freemasonry and rationalism and and modern thought and modernism. Finally, you know, you're up here, so I'm I'm in one of the as they call it the Low Country. The French call this the Low Country, yeah, or the Low Countries, and the the establishment of Protestantism as not simply the the preferred religion, but let's say the established religion dates back to this time period. Again, we. As we're looking at great themes, it's hard to get too deep into to, to the specifics of the war and battles and, and who was involved against whom. I think it's fair to say that all of Europe was at war because this was back when people actually cared about religion. And it was a matter of life and death. It wasn't it was obviously land and power were at stake. But ultimately, this is what people had been living their whole lives. And now they were told it was either a lie or it was a matter up for negotiation, depending on, on where you live. And there, there are some, some clerics who think that the end of this war is, is a crippling blow for Christendom, and, and that's the, the, the piece of Westphalia. So obviously, uh, it's not, not fair to simply skip over the war, but in, in terms of time and what we're trying to cover today, we, 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 we will. But what are, we talk about principles that are still with us to, to, to this day. What are the principles that the Peace of Westphalia and, let's say, the, the era surrounding it have passed down to us to this day? The, um, the essential principle is that uh, the Catholic Church, the Pope, no longer has anything to say. So more than one writer or commentator has drawn the line of the link between uh, 1648, the, the Peace of Westphalia, and 1919, the Versailles Peace Treaty after World War I. Benedict uh, the Fifteenth actually thought, I think it was very naive of him, but he actually th- and sincerely thought that he would have a place at the table. He wasn't going to have a place at the table. It, it was Innocent the Tenth who was excluded from the table in the 17th century uh, by the, the great powers of Europe who uh, were, had carved up Europe and had made their own political compromise and accommodation. And he was simply informed of the decisions that were made. So now, from now on, the idea of, of the political power of the papacy, the, if you will, the papacy as a player with the big boys at the table, that's finished. That's over now. Um, and now religion, uh, the, the age becomes secular, and religion becomes increasingly something external, pro forma, or at the very best, uh, personal, private, and individual. Both of which, of course, so that's that's the, the work of Freemasonry and the work of naturalism, in uh, in particular. I think those are those are some of the effects. Um, the 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 idea too, Machiavelli wins. That what politics trump and politics in the interests of this world trump the interests of heaven every time. Uh, this was the French. Uh, this was the French politic or the French policy during the Thirty Years' War. Uh, they wanted France to stay Catholic, but they, they wanted Germany to go Protestant because that would be to their political advantage. All of these things, too, I think you have to say, 
the divine justice, France would be terribly punished for her role in all of this and her in her her revolt, uh, leading the revolt against the papacy, going back to Philip the Fair. France would be punished for this, and indeed, and indeed, the Catholic Church, Rome, the the papacy was terribly punished by Almighty God, I think, for the the naturalism and the corruption, the pagan, the neo paganism of the Renaissance, centered in Rome itself. So I think you can see, if you're looking at the root of the rot, you can see the divine justice, the divine retribution against Rome and against uh, and against France, eldest daughter of the Church. These are all very, very important factors. But for the Peace of Westphalia, you have to say from then on, it's finished. The the uh, the, the, the the popes want to have a certain role. You see that in the 20th century, particularly, uh, but no one ever takes them seriously. And what they do is they, they use them and they manipulate them for their own purposes. You say that very well with um, the, with the Mexicans and you uh, the, the Cristero era, and you see it too with the uh, with the Russians at the beginning of uh, the communist revolution, uh, Pius XI, and also Pius XI, Pius XII, and the rise of national socialism, the Nazi movement in Germany. They use the church. And they use the church's diplomacy, but they don't take the church seriously, and they don't respect the church. They fear the church to a certain degree because of its of its moral power. But that's and and, and for that reason, they they seek to stifle it or to manipulate it. That's about all. Well, and and I again, I think of the 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 Greeks and the, and the Minoans and that that famous quote that the the strong do as they wish and the weak do what they must and there were many Catholics just caught in the crossfire here so you it turns out you know you want to practice your faith and your prince your king decides he doesn't want to have anything to do with the old religion and at this point you either become the secret Catholic and you start uh, building accommodations for Bishop Dolan to come visit you. Uh, in a, a tidy, a tidy little uh, hole, or you you leave, and I suppose you're actually there. Even the church wouldn't say that there's a, or maybe you would. I, I guess what would have been the answer at that time period? Would the answer have been we've got to go, we have to move to a Catholic land? Obviously, you don't have the mobility at the time of the Renaissance that we do in in modern times, at least in a first world country. If we're going to do a like to like comparison. But is is there is there a right answer there, or would it have just varied from family to family? I think it would have varied from family to family with a whole lot of of, of, of circumstances. It's interesting, though, in the very terms of the treaty of the, the Peace of Westphalia, that's talked about, and then that, and that therefore one would have a right to move with one's um, one's honor. That was an important concept back then, as well as one's pro- movable property, presumably one's money, to 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 another place where one could practice one's one's faith. Um, there were the, there were those English who did, who went to to Catholic countries in order to practice their faith, and there were those who soldiered on uh, during the, the 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 long long centuries of, of bloody persecution. So it's probably it's a probably personal a personal uh, question, uh, but it, but it, but it is an interesting one. And um, uh, in fact, in the next of our clerical conversations, we're thinking about actually dealing with that very their topic for for the month of May about the idea of Catholics relocating in order to be near church or to be near the mass and the pros and the cons of that. But it, it, this begins too, that with this very significant, very, very important treaty of Westphalia. Well, I, I have to declare, at least in the modern era, you're, I'm a shameless relocationist. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm happy to be, uh, 
labeled as such, having having done so at least a couple times, and I've got one more up my sleeve uh, soon, I should add, that uh, the the idea of of having to, to do something different, I suppose, especially we talked about today, the, the church of the um, Our Lord in the Attic here in, in Amsterdam, that there's this absolutely beautiful church. It was uh, built uh, in, inside three houses in, in central Amsterdam because Catholic worship was uh, formally prohibited. And I suppose in some ways, Your Excellency, and I, I told you, I said, if the church, the church is quite beautiful. And I said, if this is the result of Catholicism being outlawed, uh, we probably need to outlaw it tomorrow. And <laughs> the, yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 the idea perhaps is that, as you say, since the answer is different for every family and every situation, that also the fruits can be positive in either situation, the fruits of a relocation or the fruits of, of, of staying where you hold, standing your ground and, and, and trying to, to put, put up a resistance, maybe even a restoration. Um, there's there's uh, merits to that as well, and we see that play out dating back from this time period. Yeah, that there is something to be said for you know the the Old Testament concept of go out from her, my people. Uh, look at a St. Francis de Sales, for example. This this immense spiritual crisis that he went through as a young man, as a as a as, as a student in Paris, specifically because of the influence of Calvinism on Catholicism, which equals the Jansenist heresy, and he, he, he despaired of his own salvation because of the evil that had been done, that sort of the Calvinist heretical ideas had permeated into Catholic thought, and that, that as I say, that's, that, that, that's the Jansenist movement. So the idea, of, if one could, of separating oneself entirely, or the, the kind of curious way the, the old Catholic church nobility say, ended up in England and uh, just uh, sort of cold and, and very minimalistic and very go-along to get-along, keeping the doctrine of the faith, but that's about it. Uh, that would be another fruit, a bitter fruit or a sad result of living in the midst of, of the Protestants for all of those centuries. There's an effect that's often to be seen, and it's not a happy effect by any means, but we're worth thinking about, worth talking over. Right, and that's the spirit we often, I would say, we rightfully accuse ourselves of, Your Excellency. There's a certain uh, go-along to get-along spirit that's oh, yes. uh, endemic to any any American. It's just that's the, what we're born into, and we have to do our best to wash that out of our system. And, and then, as a result of the peace of Westphalia, I think that that go-along to get-along more and more. Uh, within about a century or so, uh, influenced uh, Roman uh, thought, the papal policy. And uh, you, you end up with the suppression of the Jesuit order in order to please the Freemasons. You end up with the idea of no, you, you didn't even talk anymore. They say that during the reign of Pius IX, you didn't even talk anymore about the ideal of a, of a Catholic state. That was just uh, the papal states, yes, but the idea of a Catholic state subjected that the only, only Dom Garanger, this great personal friend of Pius IX, could talk about it or write about it publicly. There was this this idea of um, of, a, of, a, of an incredible spirit of submission to whoever happened to be in charge, whatever civil authority. And the, the, the church had gone in that direction to an extreme degree, really. But all of this starts with the Peace of Westphalia. And all this too maybe is in, in a sense the divine retribution for 
for the lack of um, the lack of a, of a burning, vibrant Catholicism just when it was needed. I suppose the the last thing I want to talk about today, Your Excellency, um, is is this idea that even in its fragmented form, that, that Germany played such a huge role. We I think a lot of times we think of 20th century politics and historical events, and we think about what a role Germany had in the last century. But, but I think it can be successfully argued without, without too much uh, banging about of brains that the German apostasy effectively closed off all of Northern Europe to the church. So we lose Sweden, uh, the rest of Scandinavia. We get, an e- we get a buffer, an, e- an additional scab against the Orthodox, and we lose the Low Countries. And we have this, you could say, northern front now opposed to to the southern, to the, the central and central and southern Europe of Catholicism. And, and had it not been for um, the great early Jesuit Saint Peter Canisius, had it not been for him, uh, much more of the German-speaking lands, including Austria. And, and parts of Germany that stayed Catholic would have been lost to the church as well. That was, there, was, there was a true swing era there for a number of decades in the 16th century. Uh, this is probably something more we can develop in the, if we talk about the, uh, the true Catholic counter-reformation, but the, um, or the true Catholic reformation. But, but, but the fact of the matter was that there were just some heroic men, there were some real saints who saved the day for many a region and for many, um, for many a country the saint that we had uh, just yesterday, St. Fidelis of Sigmaringen, this Franciscan martyr for the faith in Switzerland, uh, he did the same thing for the German-speaking cantons of Switzerland. He kept the faith alive there, and, he, and by his blood, he, he drove off uh, Protestantism. So while we lost an awful lot, we would have lost even more had it not been for the sacrifices of the saints. Yes, and I, as someone who's a lover of all things that are good and Jesuit, uh, I would say that think, think at least that's one one way we can be thankful for the Jesuits, Your Excellency. Uh, I would agree with you. That that's at least one way we could be thankful for the Jesuits, and it's <laughs> nice to have a, it's nice to have a way. <laughs> um, well, for those of you who are just joining us, you are coming into the tail end of Brood of the Raw, Episode Three, with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. I'm Stephen Heiner, and in our last segment of the show today, we were discussing the Peasants' Revolt and the Thirty Years' War and the the corresponding Peace of Westphalia and what that means uh, to us today. And His Excellency hinted that a good part of our next episode, if not all of our episode, will be dedicated to what is popularly known as the Catholic Counter-Reformation. But as I alluded to, if I don't accept that there was such a thing as the Protestant Reformation, if I call it the Protestant Revolt, which is what it is, then we can't really call it the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and His Excellency suggested we could call it the Catholic Restoration, and of course we here at Restoration Radio like that idea. I suppose, mm-hmm. Your Excellency, could, could we also call it, could we call it a, the Catholic Reformation? Uh, insofar as there, there were some reforms that were carried out at that time. Oh, oh yes, because because certainly the church was corrupt in her head and in, and in her members. The phrase rings true. And there was a uh, there was a true need for a true Catholic Reformation, which is always led by the proper hierarchical authority, as we we'll see with the Council of Trent, and uh, whose a brilliant example uh, is is given by 
saints whom God in his mercy sends to each era. So the great saints of that era, they were the ones who led the way to, to a true and a Catholic Reformation. Absolutely. And, and that's why, actually, I think it's so important to resist, because the idea of the, uh, the notion of the Catholic Counter-Reformation is because even the phrase makes it sound like the Church is opposed to Reformation. So the Church wants to, oh, there's going to be a Reformation? Okay, the Catholic Church is going to counter that Reformation. We're going to go back to the Dark Ages. And even using that phrase, I, I'm very against Catholics allowing themselves to, to, to be caught up, obviously, sometimes by historical convention. We have to use it, but if we have a choice in our words and our discussion with people, I think it's a great way to talk about, uh, to start a discussion. I, I, I've been at more than one academic conference with a number of Protestants, and I, I've talked about the Protestant revolt and got at least two or three eyebrows raised. <laughs> I bet you and did. Then of course, of course that, leads, that leads to some great discussions, but if you use the enemy's terms, big surprise, you're going to get the enemy's premises. Yes, if, if, if the enemy controls the vocabulary, the, the enemy has won the argument already. So we can't, uh, we can't, we can't concede the, the words, the, the terminology. We have to insist on, on, the, on the true and the Catholic. Absolutely. Is there anything else, Your Excellency, before I let you go today that uh, we, um, we need to cover? Anything that we missed that you'd just like to mention before I let you go? What? Yes, maybe just briefly to say, doesn't all of this illustrate the importance of, uh, I, I believe you have used the phrase in the past, even Catholics today eating their vegetables, that is to say, setting down for some serious study or even serious listening thought and discussion on these topics, uh, the whole business about the false concept of uh, tour guides and who Martin Luther was and, and the so-called Protestant revolution or reformation, as they call it, um, that, that points out that the indulgences, too. You have to know, you Catholics, you have to know your history. You have to know your theology, your terminology. And you have to know, and, and you have to always be able to cast it or frame it in the way of, as Father Fahey would, the, the beauty of the supernatural plan, the divine plan for grace, the life of God, a society which reflects and permits the kingship of Christ. And you have to be able to cast it in, in, in that sense. But um, in addition to the, to the damning quotes about, from Martin Luther and, and about Martin Luther, just something to keep in mind when it comes up in discussion is, is the fact that, that Luther, the Catholic faith, does not cause division and disunity. That's a lie. That's a one of history's great lies. Luther is the one who introduced, because of nominalism, the idea of opposition, of separation, and of division. Everything in Luther's program is a, is a division. Grace is divided from nature. And the Christian is, the man as a Christian is divided from the concept of man as a citizen. Um, Man's cooperation uh, for for is divided from Almighty God's grace, and His grace, His invisible grace, um, is divided from our own visible cooperation, uh, and and so on. Um, the, the the whole story of Martin Luther is a story of separation and of division. Not only the division of Christendom by the introduction of heresy and of schism, ripping, as our Lord said, the, the, the seamless robe 
which is his church, which is such a grievous and a serious thing. But also in every sense, it is, um, it is division. And finally, it leads today to what any thinking modern would have to acknowledge is the reality. A one world, we're working our way towards a one world tyrannical government. Luther laid the foundation for that, and he pointed the rulers in, in that direction. And they've only followed him ever since. I think that's uh, as good a place for us to, to stop as any, Your Excellency. Um, reminder, if you'd like to to follow some of His Excellency's other work, he's not always just discussing history with me, uh, or he's not always uh, just discussing timely issues as he does on clerical conversations with Nicholas, but he also uh, happens to be a, a pastor of a parish, so he gives regular sermons as well. And you can find those at sgg.org, sgg.org. There's also live um, webcasts, uh, which we got to see Holy Week. Uh, His Excellency survived Holy Week, uh, which is uh, challenging, Indeed. not just spiritually, but liturgically. And you'll find on SGG.org some beautiful pictures of the blessing of the new fire uh, during the Easter Vigil, uh, which, uh, because the traditional Easter Vigil uh, pre-1958 is during the day, um, you can see everybody. So don't worry about having to, to make out His Excellency in the dark. Uh, you'll be able to see him and the new fire quite well. Your Excellency, as always, thanks for uh, uh, taking the time to join us today, and um, God bless you, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as usual, Stephen. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you. And uh, remember that if you have any questions for His Excellency that you want to ask or you have follow-up, this is an interactive show. I know it doesn't seem like it sometimes that His Excellency and I just have our own agenda of topics that we want to talk about. Remember that you can participate by either sending in questions or asking for clarification. Uh, we have a dedicated email address for that, rootoftherot at truerestoration.org. Simple enough, rootoftherot at, root root at truerestoration.org. And a reminder, too, that this show, Root of the Rot, is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. However, permission can always be easily obtained, or I would say not always, but usually, easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. If you're listening to our show in iTunes or Stitcher, please make sure to leave us ratings and reviews. It helps those looking for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our work. I'm going to repeat that again because I'm always looking for reviews uh, because I listen to the shows myself in iTunes. For those of you who haven't, and I know there's uh, 30% of our listeners of Restoration Radio listen in iTunes, so I'm speaking to you, iTunes Apple users. If you are listening to our show in iTunes or Stitcher, please make sure to leave us ratings and reviews. It helps those looking for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our work. A higher-rated show shows up higher in search results. That means strangers can find our work. And if we're not just interested in preaching to the choir, this is a little bit of guerrilla warfare that you can do for us. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, 
the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or sometimes simply even an ave for our work. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.